Let's pray and jump in. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day and for this place that you have appointed for us to gather. And Lord, we want to do your will, and we're trying to lay a foundation here after after the craziness of COVID and all of the stuff, a new foundation that we can build on going forward. And we want to build it on Jesus, and we want to build it on your word. So help us today as we continue to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in kind of an interesting part. Maybe I should put interesting in quotes. An interesting part. It depends on who you are if you find this interesting. An interesting part of the book of John. Chapter 7 and 8. Now you might occasionally get a text out of 7 and 8. But very rarely do we spend a lot of time uh, just reading those or preaching from those. And primarily it's because it's not a story. And neither is it uh, crystal clear teaching. What's taking place in chapter 7 and 8 is actually an example of the building tension that's taking place in the story of Jesus. It's one thing for him to appear and go around and do these good works and feed the people and all of these things. And that attracts crowds and people come around and they start to become aware of him And maybe the leaders are are a little uncomfortable because he's done some things like healed on the Sabbath and told a man to carry his mat and some things like that that have broken their rules. But, But with anything, in the early stages, it's still kind of a wait and see. But as things begin to develop, you feel the tension growing. And chapters 7 and 8 really flesh out this growing tension And it's filled with intellectual and theological disagreements and the beginnings of the people uh, to try to trap Jesus or to confront him. And basically what's taking place here is you've got confusion. But in the midst of the general confusion, there are these isolated pockets of clarity. So I, I chose to entitle this message today, confusion and clarity because both of these things are taking place. And I think this is incredibly useful to us to bear in mind in the day we live and in the place we live because we're surrounded by a lot of confusion. I think if there was one way to define this age, it might be with that word. We're just not sure what to think about anything. And there's a lot of confusion out there and a lot of uncertainty. And and maybe this person is certain of this and this person is certain of that. And if you're someone who's listening to the voices around you, you just look at it and you're like, "This this is a mess. There was a lot of that going on. And it was even taking place in Jesus' family. So as we start this chapter, John chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Now, it says after this. What is the after this? Well, you remember chapter 6. We spent four Sabbaths on that chapter. First, he feeds the 5,000. They want to make him king. He refuses to do it their way. He sends them away. The disciples go through a tough night on the sea where Jesus lets trouble come on them. 
Then they all gather around and he's got a chance to fix it, but instead of fixing it, he just keeps offending them more and more and more and more until at the end, it says a lot of those who were his disciples left and no longer followed him. But only the 12 stayed. And they said because their reason for staying was only you have the words of life. They were hearing something in what Jesus was saying. Now, this is an important concept, and it's, it's hard for us because it feels like a setup to be duped or trapped. And the concept is this. Jesus uses this phrase, and it shows up again in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear. And the implication of this is that truth can be recognized when it's heard. Now, That's scary. That's dangerous because the world is full of people giving us messages trying to confuse us. How do we discern truth in the midst of confusion? Well, very key to this is the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's talk about this because this will show up as we go through this. So here we go. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So this is an interesting passage on a lot of levels. First of all, just the reality that Jesus had brothers. I mean, I guess it's not unrealistic to assume he might have, but here we see definitively, and in a few other places, his brothers come with his mother to take him in hand because he's behaving strangely. But here are his brothers talking to him, and what's interesting about what they're saying to him, that last phrase says, that last phrase says they didn't believe in him, Maybe a better way of interpreting that is saying they didn't understand what he was trying to do because they're taking very much the same view as those who tried to say, uh, who tried to come to Jesus and make him king by force. What they're saying is, look, you're doing lots of miraculous stuff. Get out there. Show the people. Build up your army. Take control. It's the exact same thing that was taking place in chapter 6 after he fed everyone. They were pushing him to do things in a way that was not God's will for him to do things. But they say, verse 4, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. So what is the flaw in their reasoning? Jesus' goal is not to become a public speaker. I mean, a, a public presence to be well known Jesus goal is to be savior of the world and king but it's different than anybody understands now an interesting point about these brothers it's hard to know exactly who we're talking about here but it's very likely we're talking about James who will later be identified as the brother of the Lord And Jude, who later is identified as the brother of James. Now, this is not James, the brother of John. 
This would be James, the one who becomes very important in, as a leader of the church after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. Well, how do we know it's not the James, the brother of John? Well, Acts tells us that James dies early on. He's the first disciple to die. So right here, there's an insight in this that we realize all of us go through a developmental process in faith. And here is James, the brother of Jesus, struggling to understand his mission, even though later he will become something. Let that be a hope to you, parents. As you watch your young people struggle their way along, realize that every one of us goes through a process. Every one of us has a walk. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep trusting. And let God lead. So let's go on here. The brothers don't believe in it. Verse 6, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. So here's the reality. If Jesus had gone down there and started doing what they wanted him to do, he would have been quickly killed. So he couldn't do that. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he, said, after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, this is an interesting little passage because if you are a person who, by nature, has a very active conscience and, and you have a very deep and strong morality... You read that, and the first thing that occurs to you might be, did Jesus just lie? Because on the one hand, he said to him, I'm not going to go. And then on the other hand, he goes in secret. And I think this is good for us to reflect on, that we don't trap ourselves in, in this, uh, this man-created notion of, of rules and morality and what you have to do and what you have to not do. Here's how I see this passage. Jesus is telling the truth in this sense. He is not going the way they think he should go. So his answer to them is, no, I'm not going to go like that, does not rule out him going. The second point is, it's not in the best interest of his purpose that they understand everything he's doing. Now, that's a little confusing sometimes. But, but let me ask you this in your own experience. Would it always be in your best interest for God to reveal to you what was coming up next? See, what I've discovered in my own life is I think I want God to tell me everything that's about to happen. But the reality is I don't. Because if he did, it would paralyze me and make me incapable of functioning and operating in the moment the way I need to be. And besides, most of the stuff I wouldn't understand anyway. So he reveals to us what is appropriate at each season. Let me just touch on a thing. I'm not going to talk about this, but it's an interesting point. The whole context from which the Seventh-day Adventist church came was the second Advent movement that was centered on the idea that Jesus was going to come in 1844. Did Jesus come in 1844? No, he did not. But they gained later understanding as to what that whole thing was about. 
So could it be that for our own good, God only reveals what we can handle in each season? And could this be why our founders had this concept called present truth? Because we're only capable of understanding so much at any given point? We'll touch on that more in the future, but we'll just leave that there for now. He goes up to the festival, then verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So this gives you the, the environment. What you had was confusion among the people. Some of them said, I think he's a good man. Others say, no, I think he's a deceiver. But it was all whispered. It was all quiet. No one was saying it out loud. And I wonder sometimes, as we look at the day in which we live, is that not somewhat similar to this current time? It's not really a time when you're supposed to run out there and talk about Jesus, is it? Everybody gets real uncomfortable if you, you bring up the name of Jesus. It, sometimes a sports figure will do that after, after winning a victory or something and there's an interview going on and they will, you can almost get away with thanking God, but if you mention the name of Jesus, the interview gets real uncomfortable really fast. Have you seen that? But yet, I think there is underneath it all people wondering, wondering about Jesus. Some say he's a good man. Some say, no, it's, he's a deceiver. They don't know. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. But the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Here's what they mean by that. There were schools and processes and ways you were supposed to go about becoming a rabbi and teacher. You were not just supposed to show up and be able to talk. You had to be able to say, I am qualified to talk because I was taught by rabbi this guy who was taught by rabbi that guy who was taught by rabbi whatever. Therefore, I have the authority to speak. The, the authority was based on who taught you. But Jesus seemingly comes out of nowhere and starts saying amazing things. And they're like, how did he get such learning without being taught? There's something exposed here, and, and we need to be conscious of it. And the phrase I would use for it is institutional prejudice. We are inclined to believe something because of where it came from, not because of the actual intrinsic value of what it is. It's a little bit like reading a book and you come across an interesting theological thought, but just to make sure it's right, you turn it around to see if the publishing house was Review and Herald or Pacific Press, because we can trust it if it came from there, right? But if it came from anywhere else, I don't know. Okay, this is, this is truth by association. And while it is true that it is valuable to us to know sources that are more reliable than others, we don't just believe something because of its source. We need to believe things that are true because they're true, not because of where they came from. 
You see this like crazy in our political system, right? A single event will happen. The left will describe it this way. The right will describe it this way. Everybody over here will agree with this view. Everybody over here will agree with this view. And neither of them may be what happened. We've got to learn to be discerning. So they were amazed at Jesus. How can you teach if you don't have degrees? Verse 16, here's his explanation. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Now, this is a very loaded statement that Jesus has just made. First of all, his claim is, My teaching is not my own, it comes from God. Second, he gives an explanation of how you will know that's true. Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because what he's saying here is it gets to motive. If in your heart your motive is to do the will of God, then you will recognize in my words truth. That's what Jesus is saying. But if in your heart you have a different motive, then you will not know what to do with what I say. And then he goes on to say, be suspicious of anyone who uses the the concepts and the ideas and the and and the framing of the things of God to make themselves famous. Maybe a term for that would be the idea of Christian celebrity. There are plenty of people who are using the things of God to enrich themselves, make themselves famous. This verse 17 is very important. And it's a very important verse when it comes to this idea of discerning truth in a confusing time. It says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So this is that he who has an ear, let him hear concept. The idea that truth is not impossible to discern And it suggests very strongly that your personal motivation matters a great deal as to whether or not you will be able to discern truth. If you have selfish motives, you can read this book but not discern truth. But if your purpose in coming to this word is to be a servant of God, then you will find it full of truth. So your personal mindset, your personal perspective is key to it all. Now, let me give you a, uh, an example of how when our mindset is something else, we're easily, easily led astray. Ironically, we live in a day of runaway conspiracy theories. They're all over the place. And what's funny about them is on the one hand, you will get a reasonably laid out case for what reality is. 
But then you'll get one voice coming in on the side saying, oh, no, 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 no. You can't believe any of that. They're all trying to fool you. Here's reality. And isn't it amazing how tempted we are to believe that one voice over the voices of the others? It has to do with core motivation. I'll give you another example of this. You remember the Garden of Eden, the story of the Garden of Eden? God has said to Adam and Eve, I've given you this this world. I've given you this reality. Accept these things. I'm a God of love. I will care for you. I will be there for you. Be faithful. Just don't eat the tree, eat from this one tree. And what does the serpent do? Conspiracy theory. He comes in, oh, no, 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 no. God has said this to you because he knows if you eat this, you're going to be like him. Okay, so you've got all this evidence and all this that God has said, yet here's this voice saying, oh, no, don't believe that. Believe this. And personal motivation comes in. It said when she saw the fruit that it was desirable and it would make one like God, she took it and ate. So you see how personal motivation is so key to our ability to discern truth. And if we're not motivated the right way, the simplest, the most foolish lie will completely drag us off course. So there's a passage in Ephesians that says that the purpose of, of church and church life and people being a part of it, this is beyond the evangelism purpose, but the purpose of the community is that we would become grounded, that we would become deep. It says, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. A healthy church is a church that's very hard to drag off because they're deep and somebody comes in with a crazy notion and they're like, Ah, that sounds crazy. Because they're deep. They're not on the surface. It's that motivation very deep in your heart. What is it you want? And what is it you understand about truth? See, one of the problems that happens to us is we believe truth saves us. But I'd like to disabuse you of that notion. Truth does not save us. Jesus saves us. So what does truth do? Well, we'll actually see this when we get into chapter 8, but I'll read you the verse. Uh, John 8, verse 32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus saves, truth sets free. You see the difference in those things? To believe truth sets you free from error, from traps, from all of these things. And you discern truth. Key to the discernment of truth is the attitude in your heart. So, so let's keep going here. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, and there's an interesting parenthetical here uh, that was added. It says, though, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. So that would be a later addition saying, okay, well, technically circumcision came from Abraham. But anyway, uh, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? 
Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. He's referencing the story from a few chapters before where he went to the pool of Bethesda. The man is laying there. He says, arise, take your mat, walk. He picks it up, he walks. And because he healed on the Sabbath and told the man to carry his mat, they were upset with Jesus. So they confront him, and Jesus says a few words to them that makes them even more angry. And then at that point it says, from that time on, they began to look for ways to kill him. So Jesus is referencing the miracle of healing the man and having him carry his mat on the Sabbath and saying, look, you're mad at me because I healed a man on Sabbath. But you guys circumcise on Sabbath because you have this law that tells you to do it. Stop being caught in your narrow mentality and look at reality. I'm not saying don't circumcise the kid on the Sabbath. Fine, do it. But don't be mad at me for healing this whole body. Stop judging by mere appearances and instead judge correctly. Verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Okay, this is very interesting here because it speaks to the reality of what happens within a religious community. This is another example of confusion. If we we wanted to throw another word on there that describes this scenario that takes place in bodies of religious people, we could call it Babylon. You know that phrase that comes up in Revelation that describes confusion. And it's from the word Babel, which is where the languages were confused. It's where the people did not understand one another. And this idea of a spiritual confusion in the Bible is referred to as Babylon. It's a time of confusion and not knowing. And what we see in this little passage here is the confusion in the people. Wait a minute, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? Did they figure out that he's actually the Messiah? But wait a minute, we we know where this guy is from. We're not supposed to... So when you're totally reliant on your charts and your concepts and everything you think you understand about what God is doing, you will find yourself confused. Because God doesn't ever seem to agree to align himself to our boxes. He continues to be who he is. And the irony here is uh, there, there had grown this understanding, this notion uh, in, the, in the pop theology of the day, that the Messiah would just sort of appear out of nowhere. And if you read Mark, that's kind of what he does. He just kind of appears out of nowhere. Even in John, you don't have a birth narrative. But Matthew and Luke, they have a whole story there. In fact, they had connect their story to prophecy. So the people, even in that day, didn't know for sure what they were looking for. But some of them were so committed to what they thought that when the Messiah himself appeared in front of them, they couldn't see him. And this is the challenge for us continually in our faith walk. Yes, we appreciate what we've been given, but we must not allow ourselves to be trapped to the point where we will deny the very presence of God before us because somehow it didn't align perfectly with what I thought it was supposed to be. So you have this little crisis here 
And they don't know what to think. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. There's another one of those examples of Jesus responding to their question, but not exactly answering it. Because on the one hand, he's saying two things here. He's saying, yeah, I I grew up in Nazareth. You know that. But you don't actually know where I'm from. And they catch the innuendo here. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, this statement of Jesus is it's borderline blasphemy. I don't know that he's across the line here, but he's close. He's saying, I came from God, and I know him and you don't. And they didn't like that. So they try to lay hands on him, but they can't. Yet what Jesus is saying here really is is central to the point of the whole book of John. You remember, we get to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus did a lot of other things, but these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. That's the point of the whole story. And here Jesus is hinting at it, and every time he hints at it, they get real uncomfortable. They want to grab him, but here's the problem. It's not blasphemy if you actually are who you say you are. It's only blasphemy if you're not. But it's so much easier to just assume any human who would make that statement would be blaspheming. And we can we can have some sympathy for that, right? If someone came in here and claimed to be the direct son of God, we'd be real uncomfortable with that. Verse 31, still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Interesting statement, isn't it? This puts us back on that in that concept of the confusing role of signs and wonders. You remember in the last chapter, he fed them, and the first thing they say to him is, what sign are you going to show us to prove? He's kind of like, I I did that. And now here they are saying, I don't know, this may be the guy. Would the Messiah do more signs than this? And you kind of wonder, is this a competition? Who can do the most tricks? Is that how it works? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. They're like, okay, this has got to stop. So they send in the guards. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the literalism trap again. This happened lots of other times in in, in other chapters of this story. Jesus says a great truth. Now, here's why you're privileged. 
You know exactly what Jesus means by that, don't you? In a little while, I will go away. In a little while, he will be crucified. And then I will go to a place you cannot go. He will go to the right hand of the Father. You will seek me, but you will not be able to find me. Okay, we get that. That's clear to us. But to them, they didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. Nobody knew what Jesus was saying. And they fall into the literalism trap. Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So that's an interesting little inclusion that John gives us there to explain it. Because in the moment when it happened, it was a little hard to understand. But let me give you context, because what Jesus says here is amazing. So this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place after the Feast of Trumpets, after the Day of Atonement, then comes Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody was supposed to move out of their house and build themselves kind of a a shed that they would live in, a tabernacle, to remind them of the days that they journeyed through the wilderness. And so even to this day, if you go to Israel... In, certain, in this season of the year, you'll see on the top of people's houses a, a little temporarily built wooden frame with, with fronds and things on top of it. This is what you were supposed to do in the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a, this was a rejoicing feast. Some of the others were a little heavy. Some of the others were a little hard. Day of Atonement was a little heavy. But Tabernacles was the celebration of the reality of God with us. Now, there's an interesting uh, connection there, right? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. You have in Revelation 21, now the tabernacle of God is with man. Now the dwelling of God is with man. The restoration of all things is represented in the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're celebrating, and it goes on for a span of time, and on the last day of the festival, there's a very special event that takes place, because this is happening at the end of the dry season. And it's considered to be a good thing if it rains during the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of the festival, the priests go down to the Gihon Spring, or at least they did at this point, and they draw water. And then they come back and they go up the 14 steps to the altar. And on each step of the altar, they do something very interesting. And to find out what it is, you have to turn your Bible to Psalm 120. If you have a Bible in front of you, grab it and turn to Psalm 120 and look at what it says. The actual words of the psalm are not as important as what it says right above it. So it says Psalm 120, and then what is the, what is the words right below that? A song of ascents. 
Now look at 121. What is it? A song of ascents. 122, 123, 124. All the way to 134 are psalms of ascent. 120 to 134 is 14. So what the priests would do is on the first step, they would recite Psalm 120. On the second step, they would recite Psalm 121. On the third set, 122. They did all 14 of the Psalms of Ascent. And when they got to the altar, they would pour at the base of the altar this water they had drawn along with some wine on the other side of the altar. It would flow down into drains under the altar. Those would flow down into the Kidron Valley and down ultimately to the Jordan River and all the way to the Dead Sea if it was the rainy season. And I mean, if there was enough moisture for that to happen. Now, you couldn't really see it because there wasn't enough of it to see. But that was symbolically what was taking place there. Now, where does this whole idea come from? Well, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 47, you will find a most remarkable passage. Ezekiel chapter 47, and this is Ezekiel writing from captivity in Babylon about when the, the, the Jewish temple and services would be restored. And you read this, it says, the man brought me to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around and outside to the outer gate facing east and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then he led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and he led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees. He said, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows. Anyway, you, you get this picture here of this water that comes from the altar and flows out and it gets deeper the further you go. And everywhere it goes, it brings life. This is this powerful image. Now go back to John 7 and listen to what Jesus says. John 7 Verse, 38, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit. So it was probably impossible to completely understand that day. But you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying through the work I'm doing, and through those who believe, this prophecy of Ezekiel will be fulfilled. 
Because this living water that I'm giving, you remember he talks about that in chapter 4 at the woman of Samaria. If you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So this symbol of, of the water and the wine poured out that flows down and gives life, Jesus is saying, I am the one who gives this life. And this water will flow from me to anyone who is thirsty and anyone who receives it will themselves become a fountain. So let's say there's so much coming from Jesus and then it goes to everybody on the front rows and they receive it and then it comes from them to everybody on the next row and they receive it and it comes. Do you see how the river starts out a trickle and ends up so deep that you can't get in it? Jesus is describing the church. Jesus is describing what will happen when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. It's a powerful statement. And you are blessed because you are able to understand it even though they couldn't at the time. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? You hear, again, this confusion thing? Because on the one hand, they're saying we're not supposed to know where he comes from. Then they're saying he comes from Bethlehem. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. They're confused. They don't know what to do with Jesus. Because clearly what he's saying matters. But yet they can't really understand it all. Some of them are saying, this has got to be the guy. Others are saying, no, he doesn't fit the chart. The guards themselves are like, I don't know what's going on, but I just don't feel like I ought to grab this guy. Confusion. Verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Isn't it interesting how those who refuse to be in the presence of Jesus with the right spirit are so sure they know what's going wrong with everybody else. He deceived you also? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. All right, I'm going to digress for a second here and tread on dangerous ground. There is a spirit that comes upon us sometimes that is the spirit of denouncing and demonizing anyone who disagrees with me. Have you ever encountered that? We've been through a season of that, haven't we? Where we denounce and demonize anyone who disagrees with me at all. We've had some really good examples in the political realm of this. President Trump was fully unrepentant of this. Demonize anyone that disagrees. But, but let's not leave it there. Hillary, Hillary Clinton was famous for the deplorables, right? You see how it plays out? Do you see how we do it? We all do it. It's still going on. 
What I want to say to you is this. I don't want everyone in here to have the same political perspective. I'm glad we don't. But what we can't allow is for the outside forces to split us on the inside. Because what we're united in is Jesus, not some political philosophy. What I know for sure is none of the politicians have it right. Now, there may be some I'm inclined to agree with more than others. And there are some you're inclined to agree with more than others. But can we agree none of them have it completely right? And can we agree that what unites us in Jesus is stronger than the arguments out there that would tear us apart? So somehow, we got to hold it together. Now, fortunately, we're not in a big crisis right now, and I'm thankful for that. But somehow, we got to hold this together in a world that wants to tear it apart. Let's not be like these Pharisees who demonize anybody who doesn't agree with us. Let me give you another example. There are a lot of people who wanted to demonize the One Project, who actually knew nothing about the One Project. This is how it happens. So let's not get caught in these games. Let's not be like these Pharisees. Verse 15, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So he's saying, wait a minute. How come you guys are telling the ones who actually heard Jesus they're crazy and you're not even listening to what he's saying? How do you think they felt about Nicodemus saying that? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find out a prophet does not come from Galilee. Well, first of all, that's just stupid. Because there was like Elijah and Hosea. There were lots of them. So, so don't get caught in that mentality. But that's not where we land. Where we're going to land today is this question of clarity and the idea that it starts with a willingness to believe. So I take you back to verses 16 and 17. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So here's the personal challenge. Are you able to take Jesus at his word and believe him? And the key to this lies in the motivation of your heart, at least in this passage. If it is your goal to serve God and do what God wants you to do, according to this, you will be advantaged in discerning the voice of Jesus and believing truth. But if your motivation is anything else, if it's selfish, if it's to get yourself ahead, if it's whatever it might be, if it's anything other than to live a life to do the will of God, then you will be easily deceived. So the challenge to each one of us personally is that we would take Jesus at his word and believe even if we can't completely understand. 
Because there's going to be lots of times we don't completely understand. So that's the personal challenge. But here's the missional challenge. How can we help our friends and neighbors reach a place where they're willing to believe? It's not just going to happen because I've got truth and I'm going to ram it down your throat and there's nothing you can do about it. Because if I'm not predisposed to believe, to do the will of God, to desire these things, then I can easily reject what you're trying to tell me. You look at the people in this story. They're all literally gathered around Jesus. He's actually there. Some of them are saying, yeah, this guy's got to be the Messiah. Others are like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And it has to do with the condition of the heart. How can we help in an age of confusion? How can we help people to be in a place where they're willing to believe? Unfortunately, too much of what Christianity is doing in the public sphere is, is having the exact opposite effect. It's driving them away from wanting to believe. How can we go the other way with it? I like to think of it this way. How can we tempt people to be believers? You know, when you're the majority view in a society, then it's hard because you've got to try to hold everything together. But when you're a minority view, you don't have to defend every point. But just tempt people to believe. It's the Holy Spirit that does the convicting. And according to Jesus, all, all of us who believe, we have living water coming from us. How do we help people know they're thirsty? It's a world full of confusion. And to that world, we offer clarity. Are you clear in your own heart and mind? Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? Is that the deepest truth for you? Is your greatest goal that you would live to honor the will of God? If that's true, then, then this living water comes from you too. Now we've been working to get back to a few more normal things and we have a somewhat normal ending today. As Matt is going to come, he's going to play on the piano a couple songs that we know. Come on up, go ahead. And, uh, and encourage us to sing along for a couple of those. But let's pray before we do this. Father, there's so much confusion. Help us to realize we don't have to understand everything to not be confused. We just have to know where our hope and trust is. Help us to put that trust in Jesus and have clarity in a world of confusion. In Jesus' name, amen.